Welcome back, everybody. How's it going out there? Hope everyone is having a great day. My name is Andrew Kuhn. Of course, you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. Uh, of course, you know that because you clicked this to listen to it. Sitting alongside my partner, Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Andrew. How are you doing? I am doing very well. Thank you very much for asking. Um, as I did say, this is the voice, the podcast part about our business. Um, if you want to get access to investment ideas and um, have a, join a community of other like-minded investors who write about value and quality, oriented stuff, hence the name Focus Compounding. Feel free to go to www.focuscompound.com and be sure to sign up using the podcast promo code, which happens to be podcast, and that'll give you $10 off the subscription price indefinitely as long as you stay a member. Mm -hmm. Sounds good? Yep. All right, well, let's get going. So today we're going to be, uh, this is an investing topic video, um, or podcast not a mm -hmm. video we're not uh, we're not <laughs> streaming it's a it's a podcast uh, a lot of people seem to like these topic videos or gosh i did it again so <laughs> people a lot of people say, we're rolling with it a lot of people seem to like these uh topic podcasts um because i think it's good just to sort of give our general ideas on it uh whether it's right or wrong it's just sort of what we wholeheartedly think and today uh we're going to be going over value traps mm -hmm. okay so let's just get out of the way what's a value trap to you so a value trap to me would be a stock that looks cheap all the way down yeah. So it's a stock that attracts value investors because it has like a low EV to EBITDA, yeah. low price to book, something like that. And it continues to have that. Uh, but the business um, does does not work out as uh, as a stock for you, primarily because something goes wrong with the business over time. Yes, I'm actually, it's pretty relevant because I just started reading the book, Dead Companies Walking. It's mm -hmm. about a short seller. And he talks about uh, what he calls historical myopia, okay. where it's where like a company's cheap, for example, uh, or like it's like cheap on a, a price to earnings uh, basis or anything sure. like that. So a lot of people think that it's like undervalued. Mm -hmm. And that's how you could get in the situations of catching a falling knife or getting in what we call value traps. Right. Yeah. So um, like I invested in a company, Barnes and Noble mm -hmm. in 2010, 2012, I forget the exact year, but um, it, which is one of the major booksellers at the time it would have been the biggest next to Amazon and the biggest um, offline by far um, and uh, that's a stock that has tended to be pretty cheap on an EBITDA basis um, continuously as the stock didn't perform that well mm -hmm. um, it spun off some stuff and some things like that and, and I didn't lose money in the stock but I didn't make money and certainly if you held it for the long term you would have um, done badly in that and yet it, it continuously looked pretty cheap so that would have been attracted people based on the past. So it's kind of like assuming that the transition um, will not be that uh, quick there. Um, from So you're kind of betting that there won't be a very quick transition from uh, printed books to digital books in that case. Mm -hmm. And what, what drew you to, to that company? Do you remember? Had a ton of free cash flow. Um, the stores were very successful, and I didn't expect them to spend it all on Nook. Really? So if they had just so used they, it they to pay out dividends yeah. or buy back stocks or something, yeah, as it turned out, I was right in terms of the, I was actually, I should, should mention this. I was, um, I had pre-ordered the very first Kindle. Oh, yeah. I've had a Kindle since then, haven't bought printed books and things, but I invest in this company. That's the, that's the format that you read on typically. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And so, uh, and actually every time there's been a new Kindle come out, I buy that and I give the old Kindle to someone else. So I spread the Kindleness around. Wow. Very, very um, generous. Yes. Yeah, that's how much I believe in the product. But, I still invest in Barnes and Noble and still believe there would be a while till other people adopted it. Uh -huh. um, and uh, and actually that, that proved to be pretty true. So it would have worked out, uh -huh. except that they did not pay all the cash <laughs> to shareholders or buy back stock or do something like that. They threw you a curveball. Instead, they spent it all in the nook. Wow. And this is common, I find, with um, companies facing those kinds of um, existential threats. Mm-hmm. 
that uh, they try to acquire their way out of it or they try to um, use the cash flow that they have into doing some totally new business that they think will be better than what they already have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes a risk. And so I that for me, that's what often happens is that I overestimate um, uh, the likelihood that just because the company would, if run optimally, work out. Like if you imagine, okay, Warren Buffett took this over, well, mm-hmm. then it would be fine. Sure. But he's not going to. So th- these are people who were most focused on the book selling, and it was really important to them, the family. It's really important to many of the employees, the the position that it had in the in the world of, of um, book selling and book publishing, and they had a real attachment to it, and so they wanted to be leaders in eBooks. They weren't interested in just this being a financially successful investment, you know. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And that happens. That happens quite a lot, I would say. Actually. Did Did you sell out of it when they sort of came out with that? thing that destroyed your thesis mm-hmm. so they i there was a proxy battle at that time between ron burkle and the riggio family and it was narrowly won by the riggios and um very narrowly and uh when that happened uh so i knew the riggios would still be in charge and then i saw how much they were spending on nook i quickly sold out so that was one where i sold that very quickly in the stock actually mm-hmm. um had the proxy battle gone differently or had they shut down nook or something right away then i would have um bought in then i would have um, held on to that interesting and you know it's obviously we look to buy what we think are good companies trading mm-hmm. at cheap prices right sometimes a company's cheap for a reason yeah you know and that's i think uh what makes uh, a good investment from a bad investment is sort of figuring out if, is this cheap for a reason is this reason you know forever or is this sort of a one-time thing that the market overreacted to that gave you an interesting price point to buy into a pretty favorable business right right how do you avoid value traps? You well, know, how do you sort of get around that? Okay, well, actually, this company is cheap, but it's not necessarily. It shouldn't be cheap forever, right? It's more of a short-term thing, you know, et cetera. I think it's very hard to do. And I'm not sure that I, yeah. I know really well because if you look, I, I'm my biggest position now is NACO. Mm-hmm. I think you compare very much to Barnes and Noble, very much. How so? Um, well, NACO has the problem that its customers are coal power plants, and coal power as a percentage of electricity has been going down a long time in the U.S. Um, so they, they could be obsoleted over time by that fact. Um, and so that's, that's the big risk that it has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in both cases, I thought their competitive position was really good. Um, and, and things like that. Now I thought Barnes and Noble's competitive position in eBooks was bad and they pursued that, mm-hmm. but I thought their position in terms of still having the stores was good. And it turned out to be borders went out of business and liquidated, most other offline retailers took away shelf space that they once dedicated to books. You probably don't remember when Walmart and, and all these different co- companies sold a lot of books, you know. Um, all that shelf space kind of disappeared, and um, they were perfectly fine in offline. Um, but, you know, they poured a lot. They lost a lot of money on, on Nook, a mm-hmm. lot, over time. Um, and And there was constant pressure, I think, from the media and things like that to... Um, to embrace that and the, and the fear of the, the obsolescence, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that that is generally what happens. And it's, it's a big problem because, you know, it's a problem with, with NACO. If they try to get out of the coal business that they have into other things, potentially they could um, make errors in that way. I've said before, people ask, like, what would be the thing that would make you sell NACO just like that? And I said be if they buy a whole other mine, uh-huh. like a consolidated mine. So it just completely destroys your... Your yeah, so they had Centennial, thesis, yeah. uh, the mine that they had. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had some other name, and then they changed the name to Centennial because it was, I guess, the 100th anniversary of the company. But um, they uh, uh, that mine um, worked differently from from uh, the mines that aren't consolidated. And uh, they also have one mine still that kind of um, 
that isn't exposed to market risk for coal prices, but it is consolidated, and they just had to use up a lot of free. They're going to use up a lot of free cash flow this year, buying land and and ex- expanding the um, coal mining operations there. Do if you, they bought another one, I would, would probably sell the stock. Do you think a good way to ch- sort of, I guess, put yourself in the right pond of avoiding value traps is to stick to companies that are extremely free cash flow generative, and then focusing more so on what they're going to do with that, or what? Yeah. But you know that's what happened with Barnes and Noble, and yeah. um, and the company that's most similar to Barnes and Noble, in fact, it has a history, shared history with Barnes and Noble, in part, is GameStop. GameStop stop is an incredibly cheap stock. I think it trades at about two times EBITDA right now. Yeah, I know it's had a wild ride the past like five years, right? Yeah. What's impressive about that is it it looks very much like Best Buy, mm-hmm. um, in terms of when Best Buy was very cheap, and then Best Buy, of course, recovered in a big yeah. way from that, and it was just the price that recovered. Um, if if you look at the financial results of Best Buy and look at the financial results of GameStop, you wouldn't um, be able to guess what happened there um, about why Best Buy recovered in this huge way and GameStop didn't. Um, obviously, a stock can perform very badly for a very long time if the EBITDA multiple can go that low. Sure. So that that's a company that is very weird that way because normally that's right around four times EBITDA. Four times EBITDA. Okay. Yeah, GameStop thirteen dollars forty three cents. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, and but that's also one that you I worry about diversification kind of things because they also did acquire uh, stuff related to accessories for phones and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, I think they have a um, something related with Apple, I know, and also something with one of the f- major phone companies. I forget if it's AT and T or one of those. Uh huh. It's interesting because in our last uh, Q and A video, we we're talking about short selling, right? Mm-hmm. And we we're talking about how it's a tough game in, in the respect that the incentives are so driven for the company to work out, right? Yeah. So would you call Weight Watchers a falling knife, right? And that I think that's a good case study, how it went from, what at what point did you buy this, or did you write about this 30 stock? 30-something. Then it went back down to like five or whatever, right? I think it went from 37 to four. But it had been an 80 before it dropped sure. to about 30-something yeah. when I bought it, mm-hmm. and then dropped to four, and then went back up to about... Yeah, my point being like with the with the, the falling, it did go up, but my point being with the falling knife and how we were talking about like short selling and stuff, who would have foresaw Oprah coming in and who completely changing that narrative of the company? Because that was the bottom of the of the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, did you think that Weight Watchers could have been classified as a falling knife if that if that if she didn't like being twenty twenty now? Obviously, you know what mm-hmm. happened if she didn't come into the the company. Uh, they had a lot of debt, so yeah, yeah. If they didn't have the debt now, so you think a good they would re- they would have recovered without Oprah if they didn't have debt. Yeah, that their problem was that they had. If a company has a lot of debt and then its equity is w- pretty much worthless, yeah. there's not much they can do to raise money. Sure. Yeah. Right. And so that's a problem. I mean, I wrote recently about a stock f- um, for Focus Compounding, which is um, Babcock and Wilcox Enterprises, which is the other half of, of uh, the old Babcock and Wilcox. And that's attracted uh, at least one activist investor, two outside investors own together maybe 30% of it. And that one is uh, Steel Partners. That one's like 16% or something of the company now. Um, it's had all sorts of problems. It went off into renewables. Um, so that one is just maintenance on coal power plants, basically. Mm-hmm. That's where maybe 80% or more of their gross margins come from, uh, their gross profit comes from. So almost all the value that I see in the company is maintenance on um, U.S. coal power plants, right? But they, they, in a huge way, embraced renewables. And actually, that's what caused all the losses that they had and, and has really um, threatened the solvency of the company. They were in default on some loans. Uh, they got through it. Um, they had to buy out a shareholder who was trying to, who was an unwanted shareholder. They've attracted a ton of activist, um, hostile intent. Oh wow! And um, 
and they've been very close to bankruptcy at times. But I don't think any of that would have happened if they hadn't reacted to the existential threat of slowly having the decline of maintenance on U.S. coal power plants to try to redefine themselves as not being a business driven by coal, which is similar to a lot of these. That's actually the thing that I find most commonly with value traps that we're talking about mm-hmm. is that the the constant um, pressure from outside the company, media, from all sorts of things, sure. that they're going out of business, right? That over time, this business is going to disappear, right? Printed books aren't going to be important or whatever. Then they try to redefine their business somehow, and they do it in a really terrible way because yeah. you have terrible capital allocation at that point. Sure. Um, you know, and, uh, and, and it would just be, Babcock and Wilcox would be worth a whole lot more if it had never tried to get out of coal. Really? Yeah, a lot more. It's an incredible amount. So why did they get out of coal? But so Barnes and Noble. Just be, why did they get out of coal? Because because they knew it was dying over a very long period of yeah. time. Uh-huh. Well, that's interesting. So they embraced renewables. So um, I don't know if there's necessarily even as much money ever to be made in that. They had two businesses in their history that were really good, which was ba- basically once you install um, these big boilers for coal power plants or for nuclear power plants, the maintenance work on that and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a great business, and. Um, you know, uh, it's that's an incredibly old company. Uh, you know, I have the book 100 to 1 in the stock market. Yeah, I have that too. Yeah. Do you have the old one? Or do yeah, you have the, I have okay, 100 yeah. baggers and 100 to 1. Okay. Yeah. So in that one, they'll mention in the 70s or whenever the, the book was published, um, Babcock and Wilcox said it was a 100 bagger mm-hmm. already. And so, you know, that business of um, the boilers for coal power plants is a really good one and, and the maintenance on it. But it's similar to like Barnes & Noble, dominated what it did, but... Um, then very quickly in their case and the same thing with GameStop Barnes & Noble GameStop they were really successful and then that business the technology changed Changed, and so now you know it's going in a a direction that will eventually mean that what they're doing they can't make money off of but you know in the meantime they produce a lot of free cash flow sure like over time the stores for Barnes & Noble produced enough free cash flow to make up for the market cap we don't we'll never know exactly with because of how they break it out for Babcock & Wilcox Mm -hmm. Enterprises but if they had never done anything outside of coal, um, I suspect that their free cash flow would have accumulatively far exceeded the market cap that they had. <laughs> so, you know, it, 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 it the value trap, it's easy to misunderstand the human part of it and to think that somehow they're just going to milk this business. And that's not generally how business runs. It's, it's not run to milk it for you, the shareholder. Interesting. So do you think if, if there are certain things to look out for for what a value trap could be what do you what are sure. some qualities so obviously so that probably you want very low total liabilities yeah. very very low like almost none mm-hmm. okay that's always the most helpful yeah uh retailers are always a problem because they fail catastrophically you know yeah. there's not a lot of history of retailers slowly um uh going off into oblivion while making some money for shareholders all along the way um so you know it's totally different if you have like a service business versus a retailer or something mm-hmm. Um, no matter how bad things get with like ad agencies, Omnicom is never going to end in the way that Sears will end. Sure. It's going to end in a way that's much better for... How do you think Sears is going to end? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I, you know, the retail part... Well, at this point, they've also spun off a significant amount of their good assets. So, Well, that's a good example. So that's what I would avoid, actually, something like Sears. But I never considered something like Sears. That's something very high on assets and not great on cash flow. Uh-huh. Um, it's also something exposed to a tremendous amount of competition. As you know from the other stocks I've talked about, I really focus on companies that I think um, rivalry is low on them. You know, so even when I talk about something like Barnes and Noble or something, um, you know, the other businesses um, that they were competing with went out of business and they survived it. You know, so um, 
something like Sears is something where I think the competitive position was weakening over time. Mm-hmm. So generally, the stocks that I talk about are ones like, like for instance, the whole story of Sears was that it was a real estate play instead mm-hmm. of like a actual operating business play, right? And that's great, except yeah. it has the problem that you have with like a Sears had exactly the problem that you have with like an insurer that has a combined ratio over a hundred. Mm-hmm. It trades below book value because it has an investment portfolio that you can look at and say, "Oh, here's how much I would pay for it." But you can't pay that much because it's losing money each year mm-hmm. in the underwriting. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, that that's the same sort of thing. It had this business retailing that could lose money over time, but then it had these assets that were valuable. The other problem with the assets is that they take time to um, monetize. And then also you want to avoid double counting, which mm-hmm. I think we've talked about before, which is that um, you, you don't want to assign a positive value to the retail operations and a positive value to the assets. Um, you know, if people want to... Invest in something like Sears. Mm-hmm. Go buy Seritage. That was a spinoff from Sears. That is a REIT that has um, that's redeveloping the assets um, that Sears had, and that will eventually, you know, uh, make a lot of money leasing that stuff out at, at higher rates. Um, the biggest risk for Seritage is that um, Sears uh, Sears bankruptcy could cause them some problems in the short term, certainly, hmm. which is solvency issues, and that's what we should talk about in terms of value traps. Is the other thing you want to avoid is solvency problems. So companies that are extremely so levered and yeah. have tons of debt. Yeah, Weight Watchers had tons of debt, mm-hmm. so that's a solvency problem. Uh, someone asked about Fossil once before. By far, we said Fossil is the most exposed to um, dangers uh, in terms of solvency because they had some debt, but more than that, they had a lot of leases for stores, and those were Fossil stores. So if the brand suffers, then you won't be able to make your rent on that sure. stuff. So that's why retailers fail so badly is because they have to meet those fixed charges. Um, so you want to look for something that has almost no total liabilities, um, really, really low. Those are usually the most attractive. Um, and then you also want to focus on things that have free cash flow, although most of the value traps I've talked about are ones that have free cash flow originally. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have uh, problems that way. The, the asset plays are the other kind of value trap, and they're generally ones that I don't invest in. So they do attract people. Land As in attracts like, yeah. people, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, well, I did write about a, a company that's Timberland, um, but normally when I write about assets, I'm talking about cash, sure, receivables, something that's maybe more, inventory, yeah. but really I'm talking about cash and receivables. Liquid, yeah, those way. are really yeah. liquid, sure. Um, <laughs> so you know, um, you know, when I talk about net nets, for instance, I'm usually talking about something where I'm buying at net cash, or at least. Well, that's why you always talk about net nets. Net nets to stay away from retailers, right? Because mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And there's some that would, that would be okay uh, to do, but a lot of them have a lot of rent. Um, uh, I did once talk about a company which was uh, Rex. I forget if it was Rex Stores, and then it turned into um, uh, Rex All American, Rex American Energy, or something like that. But that's an example where it didn't have a lot of leases. It actually had um, pay, had mortgages that it had paid off on a lot of the property, and so that's a retailer that was able to convert and then eventually become, you know, an, an ethanol and, and other forms of energy company. So it's mm-hmm. now survived to become a successful enough energy company. Um, so it it survived sort of the failure of um, its retail business because it basically is like a circuit city, like even not even necessarily as good a circuit city. What happened to them? <laughs> well, they went on yeah, to the, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Um, well, they had the same – Circuit City, I believe, liquidated the same as um, Borders. So – um, that, but that's an interesting one because Best Buy, P, I bet a lot of people would short Best Buy. Mm-hmm. And that stock um, went on from there to, to have a, quite a bit of success. Uh, the stock, not necessarily huge changes in the business. 
Um, which is interesting because if you look at some other retailers, um, they have many of the same sort of numbers as, as Best Buy, but the stock is treated differently. So I don't know exactly why that is. Um, uh, because, you know, like you see, um, right now, what is it? Um, Bed Bath and Beyond. Yeah. Um, we mentioned GameStop, a few category killers that are, um, really big in their area that they're in and aren't going to face a lot of competition in that area, but the market values them at really low prices. Man, Bed Bath and Beyond, it's 52 week range, um, mm-hmm. $19 on the low and $40 on the high. And it's currently trading at 21. There you go. Yeah. So those are just, I mean, those are the ones that I think would be value traps that could attract yeah, people. Sure. Um, value investors. Now I would never look at JC Penney and Macy's and companies like that yeah. because they're just exposed to so much general competition. Sure. But when you're talking about these things, these are companies that, um, are very strong in their niche in the same sort of way that like Tandy or something is. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are very risky compared to something like Tandy. And you can see that from the amount of liabilities they have versus cash and things like that. Yeah. Uh, GameStop is is trading at point five nine times book value. Yes, um, zero point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's probably a company that I would stay away. I wouldn't even even think jump about it. it. Yeah, no. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of like to me. I don't want to call it the next blockbuster, but I mean, kind of going down that path. I would say. Yeah, and it's an interesting. You know, I've talked to some people about that. What's interesting is though, falling knives. I mean, there are people that do make money. I, and fall, I mean, they're, they're not sure. maybe going to hold it for the next five years or whatever, but at some price, some people could make a lot of money. Yeah. And I guess and if you're, but then you just probably got to, um, of course you're not thinking it's a falling knife. Like you're not worried about the company going to bankruptcy. Yeah. And it would have been very easy to assume that the transition to digital on uh, video games would have happened much faster than it did. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have easily gotten that wrong. Um, you know, there's a question. So why why is Blockbuster out of business and um, GameStop isn't? Yeah. Why um, are PC games um, so different in terms of the downloads that you have and stuff versus console games? Um, it, it's a question of like how long it takes to make that transition. Sure. Um, there are other issues involved with that particular company, like the difficulty of other outlets underselling them. Uh, it, it doesn't work the same way as some other businesses, so it would be hard f- to drive them out of business as much. They're, they're f- in some ways, the risk might be more um, the incentives of publishers and stuff, um, both the companies that uh, control consoles, so Microsoft and Sony and Nintendo, and also um, like Activision Electronic Arts, in- independent publishers, uh, whether it's in their interest to make more money on digital, you know, rather than some other retailers uh, online or something being able to drive down their sales. Because you have to remember that like buying uh, games at Amazon is not going to be cheaper than buying them at GameStop, either online or in store. Sure. Well, that's different than a lot of businesses. When mm-hmm. Amazon first came on and drives a lot of companies out of business, they're able to do it with lower prices. That's realistically not a way that they can ever do it with something like GameStop. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, you know, those are w- th- what I would think with value traps are uh, the issue is they're very controversial. And generally, it has been my experience that people far, far overestimate the likelihood that some business is not going to exist pretty soon. They mm-hmm. way overestimate the rate of change. They often believe that things are changing. You know, moats don't last as long. Things are changing faster now than they were a while yeah. ago. Uh-huh. Yeah, which those things are not true. Yeah. But they haven't read things from 50 years ago to see how quickly things were changing back then. Sure. You know, like Apple Watch. It's just a different something. type of change. Yeah. Well, they'll be like Apple Watch, they'll yeah. talk about, but they won't talk about you know um either electronic watches that you had digital or the quartz mm-hmm. which you had i mean the it's not the watch the watch industry may go out of business now 
but he faced threats like that twice before or something. We we wrote a report about Luxottica, and um, people don't even remember that with contact lenses becoming popular, a lot of people thought that no one would wear eyeglasses and that you shouldn't own any eyeglass companies. Yeah. So, I mean, I mentioned this because... As we the, both wear glasses right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mentioned this because this is serious because, like, these are beliefs that people have all the time. I invested in Village Supermarket um, almost 20 years ago now. And the number one thing that people talked about 20 years ago was online groceries. The number one thing they're talking about now is <laughs> online groceries. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so for point. 20 years, people have been waiting for online <laughs> groceries to take off. Yeah. And you know. Yeah. But, I, I mean, so... But you could look at it and say that could be an explanation for why the stock is cheap or something. Sure, yeah. But it's not a very good explanation, you know. And and, and in other cases, you know, that that does happen. But there's a tendency, I think, for people to remember the cases where things went to zero, where technology came in and, and ruined these businesses. And there's a tendency for them to forget all of the scares that there were that, that went away. Um, you can even look at things like, like Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you look back at Microsoft's history and some other uh, software companies, there was a point there where they were surprisingly cheap. And that's been all forgotten. Yeah. That the fact that all this, that everything's changing, you know, if you look at what the price is. I mean, uh, Microsoft at some point got to, I forget if it was $17 or something on the stock. And there was a lot of talk about the um, long term future of the business. Well, the future is not brighter. Um, you know, for Windows and Office today than it was then. Back then, yeah. Right, but the attitude is completely different that you see on that. And and so there are moments where people get very uh, afraid of those sorts of things, of technological change. And there and like I said, that 20 years ago, that was a huge belief about online groceries. And it might prove to be true now, mm-hmm. right? But if you're wrong by 20 years, you know, you're you're not early about it. You're actually <laughs> yeah. wrong, you're wrong about the stock. Yeah, you're because, actually right. Because <laughs> there were companies five to 10 times earnings uh-huh. in supermarkets. So the payback, you've made your entire investment back quite a few times now after 20 years of, of, of betting against online groceries becoming a thing. So it may become a thing now, yeah. but that's a fear that people have all the time. And we talked about Omnicom. Well, it's like people always do that, though. They always kind of overreact to what-if scenarios like Sure, that, but know? there are value investors who see these incredibly low prices on some stocks and mm-hmm. will come in to buy them based on their history. Um, and, and, you know, and... Um, I bought into NACO, which has a very bleak future in terms of coal is you know not going to grow at all, and I and I bought into it. Um, and there's lots of people who want to do that, just like you said that you want to buy into something with digital. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people who talk to me about Omnicom and say that that you know they can't imagine buying into a um, ad agency because of the you know things like Facebook and Google and um, so you know it's a possibility that we talked about how there's a lot of different changes over the years with. Um, ad agencies that they survived, but this could be the one that that does put them out of business, you know, over a very long period of time. Mm-hmm. That's always the issue that you have with with when people talk about value traps, and I don't. And they always ask me, you know, how do you know that this really has durability? That you're not buying like like Naco? How do you know? And you don't know. No, but you weigh the price that you're getting against the predictions there. Um, you know, in the case of 20 years ago, which is different from today with supermarkets. Um, the bet was really, I mean, online groceries had to take off fast and be devastating to justify the price of some of those supermarkets. Today, it's a little different. Those supermarkets weren't weren't that uh, cheap before there were some fears about Amazon buying uh, Whole Foods and stuff like that. But, you know, as far as I can tell, they've done nothing. for. They've owned Whole Foods for a while now. Uh, and nothing has really I'm changed. I'm an Amazon customer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've gotten many delivery orders from them and stuff. 
Um, but now, I, you know, so far there's no discernible change. And the stock price of like Kroger or something, I think reacted by 20 or 25% at one point. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing that you have with value traps is that there's, um, uh, there is no answer that you can prove that this won't continue to get worse forever. That, that's what happened with Weight Watchers. People ask me, how do you know that subscriptions won't decline forever? You said, I don't. Right? I don't, but how do you yeah. know? Once something's declining by even 1% a yeah, year, well, gonna, it could yeah. decline by 1% a yeah. year forever. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. You can't, I don't know when it'll turn around. <laughs> but, you know, I knew that the products that people were using don't work as well. Uh-huh. Sure. So that, you know, that people would want to lose weight and that that doesn't work as well. Um, in other cases, we may see reasons why, you know, we, we may look at it and say, okay, well, I understand why GameStop doesn't need to be in business and, you know, customers wouldn't mind. And maybe that's true. You can try to figure it out by doing scuttlebutt. You can try to go to those places, talk to people who really um, care about that stuff. That's a big one that people get wrong with value traps with um, not buying into them when they should is because they don't know anything about the customers and the business. I've talked about this a little bit before. But it's like people who invest in Weight Watchers uh, or who short it, people who invest in Western Union or short it or something, don't act, have never used the product, don't know the people who use it, they, you know, um, and they don't understand why people would use those things. And you need to go and talk to those people if you don't know. That's like Warren Buffett, you know, trying to see if people were still using American, American Express. Express. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what you need to do, yeah. and those kinds of things to like talk to the people who actually are afraid, who actually would be the ones who have to stop going there, yeah. stop doing something. You know, you if you yourself are not a gamer, then you need to go and talk to people who actually go to GameStop now and see if their behavior is going to change in five years or something or quicker. Mm-hmm. You know, and you don't want to just make those judgments yourself. Well, it's kind of like Weight Watchers, right? I mean, I always, I said that. I mean, I, there's just such a free information on there, and you mm-hmm. said, well. And the way that I was looking at it was I was looking at it only for myself. And really, there's actually a group of middle-aged women or whomever their main customer base is uh, that, that use the product, right? Obviously, yeah. I can't relate to that. But Absolutely. that doesn't mean that there's still not people that use the product. Yes, yeah. I say that all the time to people where I'm like, well, you were never going to buy the product in the first place, so yeah. it don't matter. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what your opinion about it is. Yeah, you exactly. know? Um, and that's true. Like, if you want to prove that, you know, um, people are going to stop going to Starbucks or whatever, you need to find a person who goes there now and figure out what it would take for them to go less frequently. Sure. If you're not a person who ever liked it, your opinion does not matter. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. And it's hard for people to put aside their biases and their stuff. Their biases about yeah. that or what they're, or they think that people are behaving irrationally or something, which may be like we talk about um, uh, Herbalife, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a situation where it's like, well, maybe you think that those people shouldn't be doing that. But that doesn't mean that their behavior is going to change that way. You know, it you doesn't can't mean put that yourself they won't in do their it. shoes. Yeah. yeah, and think that way. And that's a problem that you see a lot, I think. Um, it was like Carl Icahn. He's like, I don't like the protein shakes. They make me gassy. But people <laughs> like that. He's like, people drink the damn thing. That's what he said. Yeah. yeah. And I, I said, you know, I invested in, I, maybe I put a, that bias aside too much with, with um, Barnes & Noble. Because I invested in Barnes & Noble when I fully embraced ebooks. Yeah. Um, you know, but but I, I think mostly that one is a misunderstanding of what management was going to do eventually. I think that as investors, we often overstate uh, the importance of um, uh, financial incentives, far overstate them. I think we generally think financial incentives matter more than they really do. I think other sorts of incentives usually matter a lot more than we think. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we will leave it off with that. <laughs> okay. <right? laughs> I want to thank everybody for tuning in. 
course, this is the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the voice part of our business. If you want to join a community of like-minded investors that write about um, value-oriented ideas or growth-oriented ideas generally in that demographic, feel free to go to www.focuscompounding.com and be sure to sign up using the promo code which is podcast and that will give you $10 off your monthly subscription price forever as long as you stay a member and anything else to add yeah you can sign up for my memo that's right i keep forgetting about that jeff's <laughs> memo 500 plus words uh this there is no sort of uh the payment required for this you just go to our yeah. homepage and you type in your email um, of course like i always say we save your emails but we don't sell it and it's very secure and you'll just yeah. get a um, a, a weekly memo from Jeff on an investing principle. Yeah, it's just a one-page PDF you get on investing principles, a little essay, and it comes in first thing Sunday morning. First thing Sunday morning. So be sure to um, sign up for that if that's something that you're interested in. Uh, but other than that, we hope everybody has a great week, has a great day, and we'll see you in the next podcast.